Hello everyone and happy Sunday. Welcome to Fair Voice. I am your host, Hannah Syriac. Fair Voice is affiliated with Fair Mormon, but the opinions expressed here do not necessarily represent the opinions of the Church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, or Fair Mormon the organization. Today we have an awesome episode. Our first installment will be an interview with Robert Boylan on Mariology, and then we'll have our traditional devotional. I just want to let you know that on our next episode, we have an interview with Tarek Delacour about empiricism and philosophy of science and how a Latter-day Saint can establish a proper epistemology for assessing LDS theology. It'll be a deep dive. I'm really excited for it. I think it should be fantastic. Um, It'll be a really great interview. But today's interview with Robert Boylan, equally amazing. So as will be said, Robert Boylan is an LDS theologian. He is an apologist and he has a blog called Scriptural Mormonism. I'm linking this blog because it's probably the most amazing blog I've seen on the internet. I really, really like it. I think it's really well done. He posts on it all the time. His writings are very informative and he draws upon the canon in a beautiful way. So this should be super exciting. Thanks for tuning in and let's get started with today's interview. Two seconds and we'll start. All right, awesome. So today we're gonna be talking about Mariology which is a super fascinating topic, and we have Robert Boylan. So can you tell us what Mariology is? I feel like as a Latter-day Saint, many people don't understand. It's Mariology is a term that Latter-day Saints rarely, if ever, use. Uh, Mariology is basically just a fancy theological term that means the theology concerning the person and work of Mary, the mother of Jesus. We often read of other ologies, if you will, like Christology, which is the theology of the person work of Christ, soteriology, the theology of salvation, and Mariology itself is basically the theology of Mary. And all Latter-day Saints do have a Mariology. Um, it's a low Mariology, comparatively speaking, but all groups in the broad Christian and even Islamic perspectives have a Mariology. Can you give a basic rundown on what Catholics in particular believe about Mary? Because I feel like they have the most robust Mariology of all Christian sects. That's true. On a dogmatic, and when I say dogmatic, I mean an official um, level, Catholic theology with respect to Mary is much higher than other groups, including the Eastern Orthodox. Now, in Catholic dogmatic theology, there's four Marian dogmas. Uh, Mary as Theotokos, or Mother of God. Uh, Mary as a perpetual version, which means not just before or enduring the birth of Christ, but even after uh, Mary remained a virgin. The Immaculate Conception, which was dogmatized relatively recently, only in 1854 by Pius IX, that stated that based on the then foreseen merits of Christ, Uh, Mary was exempt from the stain of original sin and, as a result, kept from personal sin throughout her life. And the bodily assumption of Mary, the feast day of which we just celebrated three days ago on the 15th of August. Um, And this was the most recently proclaimed dogma of the Catholic faith. It was proclaimed a dogma by Pius XII on 1st November 1950. So, historically speaking, not too long ago, only about 70 years this year. Uh, And it states that at the end of Mary's life, she was taken up body and soul into heaven by God. And 
there's the question of where or not Mary died. And although the document does teach Mary died, the official portion of the document, uh, which is called Unificentismus Deus, um, does not actually define whether she died or not. So unlike the Eastern Orthodox, who in terms of their liturgy affirm what's called the Dormition of Mary, basically her falling asleep or basically her death, Catholics are free to accept whether or not she died or not. Though most Catholic theologians will affirm she did die, like John Paul II. And they will be yeah. very... Yeah, I think that's a really good summary. And I do like a lot of the Mariological traditions within the Catholic Church. I grew up saying, Hail, Hail Marys. Um, where would you say there is Same an interest... Yeah. yeah, where would you say that there's an intersection between... LDS theology and Catholic theology on the subject of Mary, if you believe that there is an intersection at all? There would be some intersections. For instance, uh, we would have no issue with Mary being called Theotokos, or Mother of God. In fact, in the 1830 Book of Mormon, Mary is referred to as the Mother of God with respect to her maternity of Christ, and the Mother of the Eternal God as well, I believe. So, there, so there's no issue with Mary being called the mother of God, because she did contribute, if you will, to Christ's humanity, but Christ is a single person. Um, so there would be no issue there. And although we would reject the bodily assumption of Mary as a dogma, we still do believe in theosis, and theosis is exemplified in Catholic theology with the person of Mary. Uh, in fact, in the document from Vatican II called Ludum Gentium, there's an appendix that deals specifically with Mary, and she's seen as the model of the church. Now, we would say that the Catholics take it too far, but at the same time, what, in their view, what happened to Mary will happen to all Christians who are faithful, and she's been divinized as the queen of heaven. So in Catholic theology, there is a doctrine of theosis. In fact, the Council of Trent affirmed it, um, as does the Catechism from 92. So there is the idea that theosis or deification informs some aspects of Mariology. And of course, we would take uh, theosis and we would put it on steroids as we tend to do when it comes to many doctrines we hold to. <laughs> there yeah. be some, so there will be some intersections, but of course there will be uh, important areas of difference as well. Can you talk about those, some of those areas of difference? Well, one of the main areas of difference would be, of course, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now, this was elevated to a dogma in Catholicism in the 7th century at one of the Lateran councils. And although Eastern Orthodox don't elevate it to the position of a de fide dogma, they are very, they hold to it as a doctrine, it's part of their liturgy. And if you ever debate in Eastern Orthodox, as I've had online, they've, they're very dogmatic about it. But the dogma, there's actually two aspects of the dogma. There's one that everyone knows, that there's the... Um, sexual element of Mary's perpetual virginity, namely that she not engage in sexual relations with a man throughout her natural life or ever. But there's also the physical aspect of the doctrine, uh, which basically states Mary, physically speaking, remained a virgin even in the act of giving birth to Jesus. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church states that even in the act of giving birth, her uh, virginal integrity remained intact and undefiled. So there's the aspect of even physical virginity being perpetual in the person of Mary. Now, of course, we would disagree with that because although in Catholic theology, contra how many people uh, characterize it, it's not anti-sex. Um, in fact, in Catholic theology, marriage is a sacrament in the New Covenant. And uh, in order to engage in 
the marital act, one must be open to reproduction. So there's no, although Augustine did have a very view, low view of uh, sexuality, official Catholic theology does not. And unfortunately, some Latter-day Saints still think that uh, about their Catholic friends. But as may, we would reject the pastor of virginity because I would argue the overwhelming evidence of biblical data does not support it and in fact refutes it. But also um, there is the aspect that in order for Mary to be this holy festival, she must have remained a virgin. So we would have differences in terms of her theology of sexuality and marriage in that respect as well. Can you speak a little bit about the idea that Mary is a co-mediator and co-redemptor with Jesus? Uh, gladly. Now, just just a slight correction, uh, just to be a bit pedantic if you don't mind. Uh, Go Catholics for it. Not, oh yeah, Catholics would not say Mary is co-mediator and co-redemptor. It would actually add the suffix uh, ix to it, basically co-redemptrix and co-mediatrix. Okay. And I know that you know that, and so you know the difference. But for those who don't, it basically... It's the equivalent of, say, the difference between a case and a cassette, or a cigar and a cigarette. Basically, Mary is a mini-mediator and a mini-redeemer. But of all of creation, she's the most important mediatrix and redemptrix figure in Catholic uh, theology. Now, the doctrine, because it has not been yet elevated to the position of a dogma, but the doctrine that Mary is redemptrix, co-redemptrix and co-mediatrix with Christ is actually something that's explicated in papal statements and even the catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, for instance, paragraph 969 of the catechism, which itself is a quotation from Vatican II, states that this motherhood of Mary in the order of grace continues uninterruptedly from the consent which she loyally gave at the Annunciation and which she sustained without wavering beneath the cross until the eternal fulfillment of all the elect. Taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside a saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles Advocate, Helper, Benefactress, and Mediatrix. So in Catholic theology, just to unpack this, because of Mary's fiat for her yes to God as a result of her free will. She cooperated with God in the salvation of souls in a singularly unique way. But that continued all throughout her mortal life and even in immortality now as the Queen of Heaven. And in fact, many Catholic theologians, most notably Mark Maravalli from Steubenville, has argued that when Mary was at the foot of the cross, her motherly sufferings cooperated with the atoning sufferings of Christ, making her a co-mediatrix figure in that sense as well. And that in Catholic theology, and this is seen, for instance, in paragraphs 967 and 970 of the Catechism, that all grace that is given to man on earth can only be given by Mary's cooperation in heaven. Now, one does not have to go to Mary or is familiar with this, because in Catholic theology, even Protestants can be given sanctifying grace and so forth. But in heaven, all grace is given with the uh, consent of Mary. So you liken that to a body, Mary is basically the neck of God's grace. Can you speak a little bit about Luke 2 verse 35 and how that plays into this? And I can read it while you pull that up as well. So Luke 2, verse 35, 
reads, and I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. Um, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Yes. Now, this is a prophecy uh, by Simeon um, in his old age. And some, not all, but some Catholics like Tim Staples, who's a leading Catholic apologist and Catholic answers, has argued that this is a prophecy about Mary's suffering at the foot of the cross. And not just that she would have maternal sufferings, but that these sufferings were cooperate in the atoning, salvific work of Christ on Calvary. I know for a Latter-day Saint that might seem far-fetched, and you might wonder, where are they coming from? But once you realize it's built on the utter assumptions and unintended of the truth of the other dogmas and doctrines, not just about Mary, but about uh, salvation itself, especially like the mass and the sacramental system, it does eventually make sense if you accept everything else. But a number of other Catholic theologians have argued that this should not be pushed to be teaching anything other than, than Mary you would suffer maternal sufferings. Um, John McHugh has written perhaps one of the best books by a Catholic scholar on the topic of Mary. Unfortunately, it's out of print, but if anyone could ever find it, it's worth it. It's called The Mother of Jesus in the New Testament from 1975. And in that book, he actually has one of the best defenses of the historicity of virginal conception narratives, uh, which has come under great attack uh, in recent years as well. So if I could quote from it. And he's given the Old Testament background to it. In Isaiah 49.2, the servant of Yahweh says, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. The Septuagint here translates makaria, not rophaya, the word used in Luke 2.35a. The difference is not significant, for the image from 2nd Isaiah is taken up in the apocalypse with the word rophaya. Thus a sharp two-sword, or edged sword, comes from the mouth of the Son of Man, Apocalypse 1.16. John Lee's order to write to the angel of the church at Herg Amiam, a letter beginning, thus says he who wields a sharp two-edged sword, 2.12, and ending, repent then, or else I shall come quickly and make war on them with the sword of my mouth, 2.16. Again, at the end of the book, a horseman rides out from heaven to execute final judgment with a sharp sword issuing from his mouth. His name is the Word of God, and that's 9.11, 13, 15, and 21. In all these texts from the Apocalypse, the sword is a symbol for the word of revelation, which comes from the Son of Man. And this sword becomes, by reason of men's reactions to it, an instrument of God's judgment. One may add that in Ephesians 6, 17, the word of God is called a spiritual sword, and that in Hebrews 4, 12, it is a sharp two-edged sword, which penetrates into the furthest depths of the human soul, bringing to light the sentiments and the thoughts of the character which is there. In the New Testament, then, the sword can be a metaphor or a divine revelation as an instrument of judgment. Wherefore, God compels men to reveal their true characters. The preaching of Jesus is such a two-edged sword. His preaching allowed no one to be neutral. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me is scattering things around. Luke 11:23. It stirred up strife with the family. Do you think I came to bring peace in the country? No, I tell you, only strife. There shall be strife between father and son, between mother and daughter, Luke 12, 51 to 53. The parallel text in Matthew reads, I did not come to bring peace with a sword, Matthew 10, 34. And McHugh concludes, the meaning of Simeon's prophecy, therefore, is that the word of revelation, 
Rabbi Jesus will pass through Israel like a sword and will compel men to reveal their secret thoughts. Thus, just as Jesus will fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 49.6 by being a light-bringing revelation to the Gentiles, Luke 2.32, so he will fulfill the role assigned to the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah 42.9.2, where his message will be felt as a sharp sword. So that's yeah. the Old Testament background to Simeon. It should not be seen as this Mariological focus. It's more of a Christological focus. Yeah, and I think that's a good correction. At this point, I would like you to introduce your book. So your book is called Behold the Mother of My Lord. So please tell us a little bit about the book, where we can buy the book. By the way, remarkably fast shipping on this book. Just saying. Like, oh, wonderful. Yeah, remarkably fast shipping. <laughs> well, uh, I'm glad to hear that. Um, the book is entitled, as you said, Behold the Mother of My Lord towards a Mormon Mariology and it was published in late 2017. Uh, the story of the book is interesting. I had a number of articles dealing with various Mariological topics on my blog, and a friend who has published some of her books in terms of poetry and stuff like that, approached me and asked if I would put a, together a collection of essays on various topics and publish the, let her publish it on the topic of Mariology. So after some prodding over a couple of months, I decided to give in and um, edited some blog posts I had and added some material here and there. And after a few days, um, she edited it and prepared it for publication. So that's how the book came about. And one can find out on Amazon.com. But also, if you search on my blog, you can actually find a link to a free PDF of the book. Uh, I decided to put it up online during the COVID to give people something to read. But in terms of the uh, content, um, I've, there's a couple of chapters and a few appendices in the book. Um, the first chapter is towards a Mormon Mariology, where I discuss how some Latter-day Saints, including even Bruce McConkie, who had a very negative view of the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox view of Mary, would often speak highly of Mary, and how Latter-day Saints can have, relatively speaking, a high, higher Mariology than what we functionally have at the moment. Um, then there's two chapters discussing the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, one in light of the Bible, such as Luke 1, 28, and the term Kekar Tomine, and other issues as well that's often raised. And in the third chapter, uh, deals with the Immaculate Conception and whether it's found in early Christianity. So one surveys, say, Irenaeus and others who would uh, discuss Mary as the new or second Eve, and one would discuss, say, the Mariological ramifications of that and other issues as well. Um, the fourth is a lengthy discussion about the perpetual virginity of Mary, largely focused on the Greek New Testament. And the chapter five is on the bodily assumption of Mary. And six discusses some of the devotions and the apparitions, like the theology behind Fatima in 1917. And the three appendices deal with the issue of uh, Latter-day Saints and religious images. Uh, the second is on the virginal conception in Latter-day Saint theology, and the final is a brief discussion about the term Alma in Isaiah 7.4 and 2 Nephi 17.4, 14 I should say, on whether it should be young lady or a virgin. Uh, there's a debate even to this day as to whether or not it should mean virgin or young lady, and whether the Septuagint, and as a result, Matthew was correct in rendering it as personos or virgin. Can you speak a little bit about Mary appearing within restored scripture and what 
ideas are presented about her within the the scripture that is uniquely Latter-day Saint canon. Danny, Mary is rarely mentioned in uniquely Latter-day Saint scripture. Um, however, whenever she does appear, even if it's sparse, uh, the authors speak pretty highly of her. For instance, in 1 Nephi 11, 13, and 15, which is Nephi's vision of the then future Messiah and his mother, he says, And it came to pass that I looked and beheld the great city of Jerusalem, and also other cities. And I beheld the city of Nazareth, and in the city of Nazareth I beheld a virgin, and she was exceedingly fair and white. And I said unto him, A virgin most beautiful and fair above all other virgins. And in Alma 7.10 we read, she being a virgin, a precious and chosen vessel. So these would be examples of the mother of Jesus, even if her name Mary is rarely mentioned, except in a few places here and there, as prophecy. But notwithstanding how, even then, in these visions, the focus is on Christ, not Mary, as a primary reference. Even in passing, these Book of Mormon prophets would often speak of the mother of Jesus in these very high, exalted ways, like that she's precious, chosen, um, most beautiful and fair above all other versions. So in passing, there is a, relatively speaking, a high view of Mary in uh, uniquely Latter-day Saint texts. So, yeah, I totally agree with that. Within the actual scripture, there's a high view of Mary, but I, I feel like culturally we kind of have a low view of Mary, and I feel like we have uh, particularly because of Catholic influence, I would I would say. But could you speak I to agree. why you yeah Catholic influence? Could you speak to why I feel like Latter Day Saints avoid talking about Mary at all? Well, I actually briefly discussed this in chapter one, and I do believe it's because we have a fear that it might seem too Catholic, and we don't want that. Now, if you could liken true proper doctrine to like a straight line in a road, and you could like in heresy or false doctrine through like going way off into um, one direction as opposed to going on a straight line. Um, we do, however, have a, uh, so we don't want to go down like say the Catholic route of arguing it's a dogma that she was a perpetual version or that she was immaculately conceived. And I get that. At the same time, however, we do have the habit of overcorrecting to the point where we actually instead of affirming heresy, we actually downplay it where it's now watered down and impotent at times. And when it comes to Mary, because Catholics and to a lesser extent, Eastern Orthodox tend to have this very high view of Mary, like in the rosary and other devotions. And we don't want that because that would be a sign of apostate religion. We didn't end up avoiding any reference to Mary whatsoever as an overcorrection. So I do believe, as you uh, hinted at, that there is a, this is uh, speak, uh, the idea that if you speak highly of Mary, that is ipso facto Catholicism, and you don't want that. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think that that can be kind of problematic because then we don't talk about things like the virgin birth that much. Um, but I would like you to talk a bit about what leaders have said of the virgin birth and how there has been a lot of scholarship that has come out on, on this subject recently and what thoughts you have on whether or not there was an immaculate conception, etc., and why it is important either way. Some of that was lost. Uh, you, oh, sorry. Um, could you repeat? Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. So I asked if you could speak to what leaders have said about the birth of Mary, um, whether or not it was an immaculate conception and why that is important. Okay, well, this is where I may have to correct you. Um, the immaculate conception is not actually dealing with the birth of Mary. That's a common misconception. Conception, yeah. Yeah. See, here's the thing, with, though. So, so it, it deals with the birth of Jesus. But I would like to say, I would like to point out, though, that like the the term immaculate conception, I feel like, is culturally used to refer to Mary to the point where I feel comfortable saying, "Yeah, I can apply to Mary." I I understand that, like Mary, right? Because like, there's two beliefs with this, right? That Mary was born in a pure way. That's a Catholic belief, and that conceived. being yeah being necessary for the birth but yeah i i feel like it's fine to do it culturally i don't know maybe i'm just not as pedantic as you are oh <laughs> uh, well i'll be pedantic for this podcast but when it comes to say the immaculate concept when it comes to the immaculate conception uh there's a common misconception that it refers to the conception of jesus and some latter-day saint leaders have actually used it in, in such a way or um, it refers to the birth of Mary, but it actually refers to something else. It actually refers to the conception of Mary, that is, when Mary came into existence. And to be biological about it, it's when the um, sperm cell and the egg cell of her mother uh, came together to form a zygote. That's in Catholic theology, when life begins. Um, and in Catholic theology, Mary's parents are Anne and Joachim. Um, they first appear in this text called the Proto-Evangelium of James from the middle of the second century, which has lots, lots of crazy stuff, but it's one of those texts where it's very interesting to read. That's an aside. But the Immaculate Conception, um, it was elevated to the position of a dogma December 8, 1854, in the bull Ineffabellus Deus by Pius IX, the same pope who would define the criteria of papal infallibility in 1870 during Vatican I. So he was one of those very hardcore popes. Um, he would not like the current pontiff, that's for sure. But it states in this bull that based on the then foreseen merits of Christ, uh, Mary was kept from the stain of her original sin and as a result kept from personal sin as well so that she was sinless and kept from that aspect of the fall of man. Now she still inherited death um, but she did not actually engage in sin, and she did not inherit original sin. And in Catholic theology, most theologians would argue this was not a theological necessity, like say, the atonement would be, but it was fitting that the uh, second person of the Divine Trinity would enter humanity in a sinless vessel. And there's been various arguments, biblically and historically, to support this doctrine. Now, one misconception some have is that this means that Mary did not need a savior. In, in the bull Ineffabellus Deus, it states that she didn't need a savior, but she was saved in an extraordinary sense. She was saved in a preemptive sense. To use an analogy, think of sin as a pit, and the same for original sin. In the normative way in Catholic theology, people fall into the pit and then they're saved. But for Mary, if she was left to her natural devices, she would have fallen into the pit. But because of the preemptive salvation she received, she was kept from falling into the pit. So in Catholic theology, she was saved, and she didn't need a savior, but her experience of salvation was singularly unique. She was saved in a preemptive sense. So the text in Luke where Mary calls God her savior, 
in and of itself does not negate the Immaculate Conception, at least for a Catholic. Do you think that we believe in the Immaculate Conception or not? Or is it, does it matter for Latter-day Saints? Well, because of her view that we don't inherit, because of her view of the fall, we don't believe that Adam's sin is infused into our soul, contrary to Catholic theology. Well, yeah. So in that respect, yes, Mary was immaculately conceived in that sense. But in that sense, so has everyone. So Mary was not, Mary did not have the stain of original sin infused into her soul at conception, but in our theology, that's the case for everyone else as well. However, the Immaculate Conception also states that Mary was kept from the stain of even personal sin throughout her life, and we don't believe that. Now, that's not to say that we think Mary was this horrible person who sinned left, right, and center. You know, um, for all intents and purposes, Scripture does present her as this very holy person. You know, and she was the mother of Jesus, which I know is a Captain Obvious thing, but that would be very significant. Um, you know, so she was like a very holy person, but we don't believe that she was sin uh, sinless. And we would point to some incidents in even the New Testament that would at least hint that she did have lapses into sin, vanity, and doubt. So they would be, even in Catholic theology, venial sins. And perhaps we could discuss a few of those, but yeah. yeah. So I would say, yes, we can affirm the Immaculate Conception in the sense that Mary did not have Adam's guilt infused into her soul. But that's not unique to Mary. We would not, however, accept the full-blown orb of the Immaculate Inception, and we would also disagree with it being a dogma of the faith. Because in Catholicism, you must accept a dogma. And if you knowingly reject it, you're ipso facto excommunicated. Yes. Yeah. So one of the reasons for this, this dogma of Immaculate Conception within Catholicism is this idea that Jesus as a pure entity cannot come from an impure entity, because that's really the, the problem that Catholics see, at least in my understanding. Um, so yeah. can, you, can you speak a little bit about how within LDS doctrine, we sort of view the, we, we view the birth of Jesus as coming from Mary, who is the father, that sort of stuff. How do you believe the conception actually occurred? And I feel like this is a really interesting topic. And this is the first thing that I think we actually talked about ever was <laughs> how, how Jesus came to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, for those who wish to delve more into this, I have an entire appendix in my book, uh, Appendix to the Virginal Conception in Latter-day Saint Theology. So if you want to delve into this in some detail, by all means. But to be brief, we do know that Jesus was fully human. No matter your theology, whether Trinitarian or Unitarian or Latter-day Saint, you do believe that Jesus was truly and fully human. So that begs the question, where did he get his humanity? Now, everyone say that at the very least, he got some or all his humanity from his mother, Mary. Now, some theologians, including some Trinitarians, have realized that simply saying that Jesus got his humanity only from the person of Mary would result in Jesus actually being a clone of Mary. Because if he received all his DNA from Mary, he would just be a clone. Um, and this has been actually recognized by some uh, for instance, there's a Wayne Grudem, who's well known in evangelical circles. He's actually written this massive, about 1,500-page systematic theology, uh, which I'm proud to say I read in one sitting. Uh, he wrote the following, and this is from his uh, essay, 
doctrinal derivations from evangelical feminist arguments about the Trinity in the book, One God in Three Persons, Unity of Essence, Distinction of Person, Implications for Life. Uh, this is page 26, note 18. We should not say, we say that Jesus got his male humanity from Mary. If Jesus's human nature had been derived solely from Mary's physical body, he would have been her clone, and therefore he would have been a woman. The doctrine of the virgin birth must be understood in a way consistent with Matthew one twenty, which says, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What was conceived in Mary's womb was a human baby, and it was from the Holy Spirit, which suggests that half of the genetic material that Jesus received was miraculously created by the Holy Spirit, and half was from Mary. Now, I would disagree that it came the second half, or the male contribution, if you will, of Jesus's humanity and DNA came ex nihilo from the Holy Spirit. But Grudem does recognize the traditional view that Jesus, if Jesus only received his humanity from Mary, that would be problematic because it would mean he could not have been a man. He would have been a woman, uh, which has some theological implications. But also, uh, he would have been a clone of Mary. So his humanity would be called into question in that respect as well. Now, Latter-day Saints historically have argued that the father did play a role in the conception of Jesus. Now, this is often character. Um, there's a lot of yellow journalism about this, like in the Godmakers and other things. Yeah. But all the church has ever said on any official level is that uh, the father in some way provided the male DNA, if you will, of Jesus. We don't know the mechanics, and it does not mean that he had, well, sexual relations with Mary. Um, an analogy would be that, well, people can, these days can get pregnant through IVF and other non-sexual means. And we do know that Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, according to Luke. So it's possible that God somehow provided the male contribution miraculously through the instrument of the Holy Spirit uh, when he overshadowed her. And that would add to how it was a miraculous conception. But all we do know is that Jesus was fully human and he would have had half his DNA from Mary and half his DNA from a male contributor. And in our view, that would be the father. But as I said, church has never made any statement on the mechanics of it. And even those who are sometimes proof texted or quote minds to support the sexual intercourse perspective, such as Brigham Young, often say that he himself did not know the mechanics of it. And I discuss a number of these quotes in my appendix, as well as quotes from others who affirm that Mary, even in the act of um, being impregnated, remained a virgin throughout the um, gestation period. Yeah, I think that's a, yeah, because I believe you talk about in the book, I read it the other day, I believe you talk about how Pratt also has this view that it's it's as a, as a husband to a wife, but only uses the scriptural language to discuss it. Therefore, it doesn't speak to the mechanics of it. Kind of exactly. going kind of going back to this idea of humanity coming from Mary and Mary being a very human figure, what are some of the instances that you see within the New Testament that you, because like the one that came to mind, as you said that for me personally, was when she forgets Jesus. That's probably my favorite story is Mary forgetting Jesus. Um, when I have kids and I forget my child, I'll just read, I'll open up to that and just think about how Mary forgot the literal son of God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I forgot my kids in the supermarket. I'll sure, you know, Mary could do the same at the temple. 
it's not too bad. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a number of uh, cases. Um, we do know that Jesus actually did not allow for hyper exaltation of his mother. Now, this was this would not be that he dissed his mom or he had a very low view of his mother. He would have kept the um, Ten Commandments perfectly, and one of those, of course, is honor your parents. So he would have honored his parents to the degree that they deserved honor and so forth. But that, that does not mean, as actually some Catholic apologists argue, the full orb of the Catholic dogmas. And believe it or not, I've actually heard some claim that if Jesus kept the Ten Commandments, he would have made her his mother immaculately conceived. Um, believe it or not, it, it, it's to be fair, more informed Catholic uh, individuals like Peter Williams would never make that argument, but somehow. But in Luke eleven twenty seven to 28, um, a woman approaches Jesus, and we read the following. While he, Christ, was saying this, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that nursed you. But he said, Blessed rather, using the Greek menun, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So this woman, um, true synecdoche, is referencing the mother of Jesus, praising her, saying, you know, blessed are the womb um, that bore you, the breast that loved you, and so forth. Now, if Jesus was a Catholic in terms of his Mariology, he would have said, Alleluia, amen, sister. Instead, he actually says, no. Instead, blessed is the person who keeps the word of God. So what is going on here? And in other texts as well, like John 2, 4, where he says, what between me and you, woman? And perhaps we could discuss that momentarily. Jesus is establishing, according to New Testament scholars, what's an eschatological family, a family where biological links are at best secondary. What's privileged is spiritual links. One's fidelity to God is more important than one's fidelity to one's biological family. Not that Jesus had no view of the biological family, it's just in the priority of God, one's spiritual brothers and sisters are more important than one's biological brothers and sisters. And for Jesus, this would be very important because his brothers and sisters did not become believers until after the resurrection, which is why he gave Mary to the care of John in John 19, because his brothers were not there and they were unbelievers, John 7. So Jesus refrained from allowing for a hyper-inflated view of his mother. But at the same time, he did actually still have a very high view of his mother in spite of her failings. Um, I find it really touching that in John 19, while he's actually on the cross suffering, you know, and anyone who knows anything about Roman crucifixion, they did not invent it, but they mastered it. They were, if good props, give props to Romans, they knew how to uh, crucify people. Uh, so he would have been like in this great agony and like one of the very last things he does was actually take care of his mother by giving her into the care of John. So although he did not have this hyper-exalted view of Mary, which would actually become rather dogmatic and doctrinal in some circles, at the same time he did have this great love for his mother even until the very end. So I think that kind of balance is important for Latter-day Saints when it comes to balancing how we approach the issue of Mary and Mariology as well. Yeah, I totally agree. And I I do think that particularly within the Gospel of John, we see Jesus being kind of sassy, for lack of a better term, to his his mother. Um, 
and you see that in John 2, you see that in the, the, the use of the term woman. So this is kind of a, just for context, when someone in Greek says woman, like it's, it's gune, right? It's the vocative form. Yeah. It's kind of derogatory for lack of a better way. It's, it's like saying, it's, yeah. It's he's like establishing the distance. Yeah, he's establishing yeah. the distance. Now, some have argued that Jesus is only uh, using the term, um, a polite term here. The problem, though, is there are some instances where Jewish people, Jewish men, refer to women, Jewish women, as woman, gune in Greek. The problem, though, is I'm unaware of any instance where a Jewish son refers to his mother as a woman. <laughs> so, in of itself, the term woman is not necessarily like rude. It can be, but in of itself, it's not. He, um, but Jesus does seem to be establishing again an eschatological family. So he's trying to. Provide, uh, engage in a distance between Mary, who at the, at the wedding in Cana is asking him to speed up uh, the time of his passion and his hour, if you will. Uh, and he recognizes that if he does this public um, miracle, um, it's, it basically begins the beginning of the end for him, if you will, in terms of his ministry and his future passion and so forth. Now, he does refer to his, her as woman and even uses uh, what between me and you. And that's sometimes used of two enemies saying, what's, what's it between me and you? And although John likes to complicate things, in verse five, Mary actually gets what she actually asked for as well. So there is a bit of a complexity going on here. But my view is that it's not necessarily a rebuke, but he's trying to engage in a distance, uh, create a distance between him and his mother based on these biological links. He's trying to show, no, what's important, again, are these spiritual links, which of course she did have. He was a faithful believer, even if she did have lapses, which is probably why he refers to his woman again in John 19, because this time, you know, um, albeit in an abbreviated form, he's engaging in these adopted um, language of basically adoption. He's given John the care of his mother, so he, she, he's now the adopted son of Mary, um, as D.A. Carson and other commentators have noted. So, yeah, you're right. Uh, he can be a bit sassy, um, but the, the, so, you know, um, he's true humanity. And if the Son of God can be sassy, so can all of us. Sassy, snarky Jesus is my favorite. Um, oh, I love that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the Jesus I really identify with. Um, when we talk about Mary, I think one of the most interesting things about Mary is the other Marys within the New Testament, right? Because you have Mary Magdalene, but you have several other Marys that kind of have similar roles, in a sense, throughout the Greek New Testament. Could you speak about the different types of Marys that we see and how they are connected to Mary and how they are not connected to Mary. I just like to add that I feel like for Latter-day Saints, a lot of the time we kind of conflate all of the Marys. Um, that's been something that I've seen is we confuse and conflate all the Marys, but they're all different. Mary Magdalene happens to be my favorite, but. <laughs> well, I will say when it comes to this, uh, there's a lot of myths about the various Marys. Um, yeah. For instance, at the foot of the cross, we read of Mary, her sister, uh, Mary, wife of Cleopas. And some have actually believed that Mary and her sister, Mary, are actually two characters. But if you look at the Greek, you could be parsing Mary, comma, sister, comma, and this other Mary as well. So how many Marys there are in these scriptures? There's a bit of a, um, <laughs> you know, 
Um, when it comes to Mary Magdalene, because um, that's one that can come to mind straight away. There's a lot of myths about her. Um, the seven demons thing is probably yeah. the biggest one. Yeah. Um, I remember um, I actually did my undergrad thesis under Michael Mullins. He's, a, he's retired now, but he was like one of Ireland's leading Shohanan um, gospel commentators. And one of the very first things he actually said in our class, and this was like in my first year of undergrad, he's like, um, Mary Magdalene was not a prostitute. That's a much later development. So uh, I think Latter-day Saints unfortunately accept a lot of um, these kind of myths. There's not much he said about Mary Magdalene and even the other Marys in scripture, except in passing. But because there's so much popular mythology, and I think like the Da Vinci Code and other pop level <laughs> books, which are garbage, I will commit, uh, have actually made this so mainstream, we actually think it's scriptural. Uh, there's a lot of myths, but when it comes to Mary Magdalene, um, where not she was the wife of Jesus, I'll let people, other people debate that. I don't think she was. Uh, oh, interesting, you don't. No, I don't, um, because okay. she's presented in Luke as a new character in the life of Jesus. Uh, that, but be that as it may, uh, she was not a prostitute, or it's highly unlikely she was. There's the idea, like, the woman who washes um, Jesus with his hair, you know, and that would be, like, uh, repentance for this prostitution and even the demons coming out of this woman. We're not actually told who these people are. So could it be Mary Magdalene? Yeah, but it could be someone else as well. We're not told. So I think she's given like a, a pretty bad rap um, just by sometimes guilt by association because people think she was the uh, woman with the seven demons and so forth. Um, but yeah, um, uh, it does show like Latter-day Saints and others should really read the scriptures first and um, leave the pop level traditions, lowercase t, um, aside at times. Yeah, I, I do agree with leaving those aside. I always feel really bad for Mary Magdalene. Her first, her feast day is on my birthday, so I feel a special connection to her. Um, but that brings well, us to... <laughs> oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I'm just going to say, like, when you feel bad for someone, I also feel bad for the uh, Apostle Thomas. I mean, oh, you, yeah. doubt one you doubt once in your life, just once. And that's what you're known for. I mean, if the traditions are true, he was murdered in India, you know, as a faithful Christian. But most yeah. people don't even know that. They just know him as the guy who doubted out one time. Yeah, and it's kind of funny, right? Because then you have Peter, too. And we don't call Peter, like, denial Peter or something like that. We just, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he, he had, uh, yeah, and he had a worse rap sheet than uh, Thomas. Thomas doubted once. That was it. Peter denied Christ three times. And he was one of the most petulant individuals in history. And yet we <laughs> rightfully recognize him as like a very good witness of the faith. And I do believe the tradition is true that he was actually crucified in Rome in an inverted crucifix. Um, and he wanted the inversion because he got recognized by dying Jesus three times. He was unworthy of the same death. And that's amazing. You know, that kind of shows um, it's the same with Mary as an example. Yes, she was fallen. Yes, she had lapses. Like Peter, but they were both push comes to shove. Uh, great examples of perseverance in light of repentance and what the gospel is. Yeah, I totally agree. And on that note, I wanted to close with the final question before I give you a chance to talk all about your vlog. And we'll talk about that for a little bit because I always want to talk about your vlog. But the final question about Mary that I have is, how do you think Latter-day Saints should approach a higher Mariology and using Mary as a model of virtue? That's a great question. Um, 
Once one recognizes that one can have, relatively speaking, a higher Mariology than what we functionally have at the moment without engaging in, like, say, um, wrong doctrine or idolatry or all these uh, practices, um, once one recognizes and examines carefully, say, the New Testament data, um, like how Mary, unlike Mary is contrasted with Zechariah, the son of uh, Father John the Baptist in Luke. Uh, he sees an angel in the temple and he doubts the message. Mary sees the angel and because of her faithfulness, she accepts this very difficult message that she does not completely understand. And the same when it comes to throughout the scriptures, that although she's full and she does have these lapses, she was like a very faithful believer and Christ had a great love for her. Again, I know this is Captain Obvious here, but she was the mother of Jesus. You know, just think about that. Think about the great love he had for her, you know, even, even uh, taking care of her on these dying moments on the cross. You know, that should be that although we should not pray to her, we should not have this exalted view of her, we should still look to her as a great example, just as say, in spite of his doubting, Thomas, and Peter as well, in spite of his petulancy. You know, and Paul as well, in spite of his past life and his ascent to Stephen's death. You know, scripture is full. It's like Homer Simpson, the um, Simpsons, if I could refer to pop culture. You know, he was popping, uh, going through a Bible. Stephen Smoot, if he listens to this, will love this. Uh, he, he he was complaining about this Bible he got. You know, it's like, you know, this cost me 10 bucks and they're all sinners, except this guy. But once recognized, <laughs> yeah. And the same with Mary. She was a sinner. But in spite of her failings, she was still a great example for us in terms of virtue because... You know, let's face it, sex, uh, in terms of sexuality, good is not being called evil, evil is not being called good. But she was a chaste version where she kept herself and was planning to keep herself until marriage. And she did, you know, in spite of like the accusations that, you know, um, Jesus was a bastard child in John 8 and other accusations. Um, and that if some of the extra biblical traditions are true as well, she was a temple version for a few years. I'm not trying to privilege that, but it does show that she was seen as a model of virginal um, integrity, at least prior to marriage and even during her engagement. So, and she was also a great model of just faithfulness in spite of occasionally falling and occasionally slipping off. Because we do know that after the resurrection, she was in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came. And that's the last explicit reference to the mother of Jesus in the canonical uh, texts that we have. But we do know from like other places that she was a, um, a shy spirit even in the pre-existence. I mean, Bruce McConkie, um, who, with all due respect, sometimes whenever he discussed Catholicism, um, would often produce more light. And in spite of this, um, if you read the entry on Mary in Mormon doctrine, and I'll read it, our Lord's mother, Mary, like Christ, was chosen and foreordained in pre-existence the part she was destined to play in the great plan of salvation. Hers was the commission to provide a temporal body for the Lord Omnipotent, to nurture and cherish him in infancy and youth, and to aid him in preparing for that great mission which he alone could perform. Certainly she was one of the noblest and greatest of all the spirit offspring of the Father. So I do think it's significant that McConkie, who had a very low view of Catholicism, and would often albeit sometimes ignorantly attack Catholic theology on transubstantiation of the Mass. As I said, he would sometimes unfortunately produce more heat and life. When it comes to Mary, 
person to Mary, not the um, false doctrines built up around her. He spoke nothing but highly of her. And as he notes, Mary was chosen to actually be the mother of Jesus, but not just simply this uh, physical uh, receptacle for like nine months. She nourished him, she taught him, he would learn Torah from her and Joseph. So again, once we realize that she was the mother of Jesus and all that entails, and the scriptural witness about her life, including the albeit sparse references to her in the Book of Mormon, we, have, we do see, uh, to paraphrase the Book of Mormon, that she was a chosen vessel and she was pure and chaste and a great model, as with all other models of um, scripture. Yeah, thank you for that. I totally agree. I do particularly have a soft spot for Mary because I feel like her connections to chastity and purity are really inspiring for me as a younger woman. Um, But I want to give you a chance to plug your blog. And I think it's a good timing because didn't you have your millionth visitor or something like that the other day? Um, Yes, my blog is uh, scripturalmormonism.blogspot.com. And only a few days ago, I celebrated the sixth anniversary of it. Um, now, I decided to start blogging six years ago, but I thought I'd get tired of it. And a few days after blogging, I made these excuses in my head. If people were to ask me why I stopped blogging, I didn't think it would last long. But, you know, six years later and almost 5,000 posts later, um, <laughs> still blogging. But on the blog, um, one of my main interests, because my academic background, is the evidence for Latter-day Saint theology in light of the historical grammatical method of exegesis. Uh, So a number of my posts are focused on using that method as well as modern scholarship and other aspects of theology to demonstrate the plausibility of Latter-day Saint theology. Um, I have a number of articles on Christology, which is my favorite topic, a number of my articles on Mariology uh, as well are on my blog, which were the basis of some of the chapters in the book. And um, also I have an online version of a book I also wrote, which is not by scripture alone, uh, a Latter-day Saint refutation of Sola Scriptura, which I believe is the only book-length discussion of Sola Scriptura, the Protestant doctrine of the Bible alone, basically, um, by a Latter-day Saint. So, um, I mainly discuss like theological issues, um, there's a lot of articles as well in Catholic theology and Calvinism, but also some uh, posts here and there. Sometimes I might do a humorous post. Um, I once plugged the anniversary of Life of Brian, which is my favorite movie of all time. And I think my favorite movie of any theology nerd as well. Awesome. So <laughs> what scriptur- projects? <laughs> yeah, but, the, but the URL, as I said, is scripturalmormonism.blogspot.com. What projects or articles do you have coming up that you want to plug that you can get people excited about? And you can say none. That's acceptable too. Well, I will be interviewed by Joseph Lowell, uh, who runs the new LDS Philosophy uh, YouTube page. This Saturday, I will be interviewed on the issue of solo scriptura. As I said, that's a Protestant doctrine that the Bible is the ultimate rule of faith. Um, So we will be discussing that and it will be based on my book on the topic. Um, I'm also working on some articles uh, on Eucharistic theology. Um, I hope to have some, um, a few articles on that um, because I'm in contact with the Seventh-day Adventist who's been studying both Mormonism and Catholicism. And for him, that's one of the attractive features of Catholic theology. So 
I'll be writing a bit about that in the near future, I hope. And I was recently approached by a reformed Protestant to dialogue, debate on Sola Scriptura in the near future. Um, so hopefully that will take place soon as well. Awesome. So we'll look forward to all of those and I want to thank you for coming on. I will link your blog and I will link your book that is also on your blog in the description. I appreciate it. We all have struggles. And I feel like as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, one of those struggles that we face is sometimes it feels like all of the information comes to us at once. The last few weeks, we have heard long interviews, seen a lot of articles, a lot of blog posts, a lot of viral moments that seem to show that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints isn't true. But... The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true. I believe this wholeheartedly, and that's why I believe in defending the church. You know, my general philosophy on this, just so you guys know, because you listen to my podcast, so you care to a degree, is I do believe that general authorities and general officers of the church are human. I believe the only one who is perfect is Christ. But at the same time, I believe that Christ does work through them, and I believe that God does work through them. So are there mistakes that church leaders make? Yeah. But is the church itself a mistake? No. Does the church make mistakes? I don't know if I can answer that completely. I would be okay with it to a certain degree, but I tend towards not really, because I do believe all things work together for the good of those who love God. I do believe that the atonement of Jesus Christ has this capacity to consecrate everything so that way if it doesn't seem like it works in a temporal moment it can work in an eternal sphere so i'm more a fan of thinking about theology in that sense thinking about it as existing eternally as opposed to existing within a discrete moment of time and that's what i really care about it so i do believe That my role as a disciple of Christ, as a member of his church, is to try to understand more than be understood. And what I mean by that is, yeah, there are things that I'm uncomfortable with. There are things that I don't understand. There are quotes that I have read that I have really been shaken with and shaken by. That I have been like, how could someone say this? But then I take a step back and then I look at myself and I'm like, Well, I've missed the mark in so many ways and at so many points in time that I feel like it's unfair for me to judge them by higher standards or different standards than I judge myself. And I should turn to God's standards. And God's standards consistently show me that through the atonement of Christ, his leaders become more like him, more perfect in Christ. So that's a bit of my philosophy is that I will stand with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints regardless of how I feel about it because I know that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is God's church. And I would rather be on God's side. Being on God's side rather than man's side for me means to have the humility to recognize that I don't understand everything. With that in mind, I wanted to read a post that I saw by Dan Ellsworth. And this post I think is really helpful. Um, for understanding and framing our devotional today, which mostly will center around this post and then a little bit from John 6. It reads, There is a lot of controversy these days about a set of interviews that recently took place between Egyptologist Robert Rittner and some of the church's most prominent detractors concerning the Book of Abraham. For some people, 
Rittner's arguments are troubling and have shaken their faith pretty deeply. For others of us who have weathered numerous of these devastating final nail in the coffin takedowns of the restored gospel over the years, we greet it with yawn. We know from experience that answers will emerge over time and they will not be satisfactory to everyone and we are at peace with that fact. Terrell Givens recently told of a time when he was asked to minister to a woman who was concerned about Joseph Smith's polygamy. His response to her might come as harsh and dismissive, but there is a lot of wisdom in it. After she told him all of her concerns, Terrell asked her, what does that have to do with you? She thought about that question and then realized nothing. In other words, if Joseph's polygamy was a massive error, then it was an error. If it's not an error, then this woman is fully entitled to seek personal revelation to understand if and how it has any application to her. None of us needs to ruminate endlessly on whether or not prophets of the past were good or bad people, whether they were correct or mistaken. The answer is they were both. There always will be some combination of good and bad, correct and mistaken, just like each one of us. We often post a talk given by Wendy, Wendy Ulridge, where she frames our relationship with the church and the gospel in terms of a marriage relationship with its stages of blind infatuation, then struggle, then deeper commitment. On a personal level, there came a point in my marriage where I had been asking that stupid question that all of us married people ask. I'm not married though. <laughs> when will my spouse ever come around to my views of everything? And I realized over the years, I had never asked myself a really important question, perhaps the most important. I asked myself, if my wife never ever changes in any way that I wish her to change, if she never ever comes around to my views on everything, can I still commit right now to love her and be a faithful spouse? I pondered that question deeply, and with all my soul, I was able to answer emphatically yes. It was a moment that transformed our marriage relationship for me, and it has been confirmed by personal revelation I have since had and so to those of you who are playing ping pong between critics and apologists on the book of abraham or any other issue i ask a similar question what if there will never be apologetic arguments that answer all of your concerns about historicity of scripture what if church policies will never fully conform to your worldviews? what if people at church will never rise to your expectation of how they think how you think you should how you think they should think and behave. Plan on those things never happening, ever. Not for me, not for you, not for anyone else. If you take time and grieve that reality, then take time and grieve that reality. Now, can you be a faithful and committed member of the church? Can you keep your covenants? Can you thrive in the church and the gospel? Can you do these things for the rest of your life with joy if none of those hopes and expectations are met? If your answer is no, then we lovingly respect your decision. We do not condemn you in any way, and we sincerely wish you the best wherever your journey takes you. If your answer is yes, then there is good possibility that the reason your answer is yes is you have experienced God in the context of living the restored gospel and serving in the church. On Sunday, in the Uplift Come Follow Me lesson, I told a story of when I was in college, and one summer I decided I wanted to do all of the home teaching and not miss a single monthly appointment. I prayed and asked God for help. I did great until the end of the summer when I was called to the apartment of a girl I home taught and her roommate told me that she was gone for the rest of that month on tour with a choir group. My heart sank because I couldn't see how my prayer for help to serve with full home teaching that summer could be answered. A couple weeks later, I flew home from Utah to Los Angeles for a visit. Walking through the airport in LA packed with tens of thousands of people, I happened to see the girl who I'm taught.
Flying around Utah, sorry, flying around the USA in her choir travels, she had a quick layover in LA right at the same time I was also passing through the airport. I asked her if we could have a quick home teaching lesson visit, and she agreed and laughed. She said she considered it a miracle, and I agreed. Years ago, when I was wondering how I could ever be a believing member of the church again, I made a list of those kinds of experiences in the context of the church, my own, and those of sober-minded, credible witnesses I personally know. The list numbered 43 experiences, and I have been able to add to it since. I think this is what Christ meant when John the Baptist voiced his disillusionment, and Christ told his followers, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. In other words, I think Jesus is saying, John, since your youth you have been forming mental models of how the kingdom is supposed to be. We have all been doing this, me included, and it's hard to make such fundamental arguments to mental models that have comforted and sustained us and transitioned to reality that is more complex and honestly sometimes disappointing. And I'd just like to add, just as a little break, that I think reality can be quite disappointing for all of us because we see through a glass darkly, but we are going to keep going to keep reading this post. But can I ask you to focus on this simple question of whether the power of God is manifest in what we are doing right here and now in the present? Christ was pointing Jesus in the direction of mindfulness. We don't ever really have the past. We only have others, other people's and our own stories and narratives about it. We also don't ever really have the future. All we have are our visions of what we hope and expect it will be like. What we really do have always and forever is the present. And the very best questions that can be asked about faith are the ones that deal with the present reality. If you want to understand how to best navigate challenges of historicity or anything else in your religion, then turn to Christ and try to understand how he navigated those things in his religion. If you are patient and humble and willing to study and listen and hold firm commitments, he will tell you these things personally through Revelation. Is the power of God seen in our church service, especially our missionary and temple work? Yes, it is. And this can be verified right here, right now. And knowing that, I personally don't care whether Joseph Smith derived the book of Abraham from a missing scroll or from a plate of scrambled eggs. Questions of historicity are interesting, but the reality is there is no, there is simply no mental model I can ever form of scripture or church history that will be entirely accurate. This is because I didn't live what those people lived, walked where they walked, and see what they saw. So in the meantime, I'm open to considering various theories about scripture and history, but competing theories especially ones expressed by people hostile to the church where I see God's hand on a regular basis, will never occupy more than a small fraction of my mental and emotional and spiritual real estate. There are so many more important things to learn and experience right now. As Neil A. Maxwell said, the past of each of us is now inflexible. We need to concentrate on what has been called the holy present, for now is sacred. We never really live in the future. The holy gift of life always takes place the form of now end quote and then end that's the end of that post this is one of the greatest posts i've read on this subject because i feel like when we ask these questions about historicity about accuracy of the book of abraham or book of mormon about where it took place all of these questions that we ask about church history yes they are important to a degree 
But as the post asks us, they're asks us to consider they are unimportant with respect to our relationship with Christ. They are unimportant with respect to our understanding of the current doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Because again, the history of the world, regardless of religion or non-religion, non-religious people also are guilty of plenty of evil things too. All people have evil things. All people have blots and sins and stains on their historical records, except for Jesus Christ. And now I'm going to read some parts of John 6 that I want to just have a brief, brief conversation on because I feel like this is super important. And I'm reading straight from the Greek, so might be a little bit messy, but we're going to go to John 6 again, as I said. Um, it should be really fun. So John 6, let's open up to verse 52. Um, actually, you know what? We're, we're, I'll be, I'll be good to you guys. We're going to do 43 onward. Um, I'll do 43 to the end, which by the way is a lot of Greek. So again, bear with me. I'm just going to read it and then I'll give my thoughts afterwards. Cool. So, and Jesus said to them, don't Um, I guess, like, grouch around with each other. No one is able to come to me if not through the Father, the one who has sent me, um, draws him, and I will raise him up in the the last day. Um, It is written in the prophets, um, and all will be taught the word of God. Everyone having heard from the Father and having learned it comes to me. Um, not that the father has seen anyone, if not the one who is from the father, he has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes has life eternal. Um, I am the bread of life. Um, your fathers ate in the desert manna. Sorry, your fathers ate manna in the desert um, and they died. <laughs> this is the bread from heaven having come down that if anyone might eat of it and not die. I am the bread, the living one, having come down from heaven. If anyone shall eat of this bread, he will live to eternity. And also the bread that I will give is my flesh. Um, like upon or in fact, for for the word. Again, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Um, therefore, the Jews were arguing with each other, saying, um, "How is it possible that this man is that this man is to give the flesh of him to eat?" Then, therefore, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, if ye, you, not ye, if you, um, I love when my kjv slip in, if you um, will not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and will not have drank the blood of him, then you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and the one who drinks my blood has life eternal, and I will raise him up in the last day. Um, in fact, my flesh, um, in, yeah, in fact, my flesh is real food and my blood, and my blood is real drink. 
Um, the one who eats the flesh of me and the one who drinks the blood of me lives in me and I in him or remains in me. Anyways, it's Menno. Um, as the living father sent me and I live because of the father and also the one who feeds upon me, he will live also because of me. Um, this is the bread that has come down from heaven. Um, not like in the same way the fathers ate and died. The one eating this bread will live into the ages. Um, and that's that's a reference to Moses's manna, by the way. Um, he said these things in the synagogue teaching in Capernaum. Um, therefore, many of the disciples, having heard him, said, uh, this word itself is very difficult. Who is able to hear it? Then Jesus knowing this in himself said that they knowing this in himself namely that the disciples of him were grumbling around about this he said to them does this scandalize you um therefore what if you shall see the son of man ascending to where he was before um it is the life-giving spirit the flesh does not earn anything um i speak the, the the words that i speak to you are spirit and are life but there are some of those of you who do not believe. And Jesus knew from the beginning who the ones who, who the ones were who were not believing and who the ones were who would betray him. Well, the one who would betray him. And he was saying, because I have said this to you, that no one is able to come through me except it shall be given to him from the Father. And then we get the fun part. From that time onward, many of the disciples of him left to the back and no longer walked around with him. Then Jesus said to the twelve, and this is my, by the way, this is my favorite verse. Um, this is my favorite verse um, for several reasons. I know I said I wouldn't interrupt myself, but this is my favorite verse because I feel like it kind of encapsulates the gospel. Um, are you also not wishing to leave? Simon Peter answered to him, saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life eternal. And we have believed and have known that ye are the sanctified one or the holy one of God. Jesus um, responded to them, um, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, um, except one of you is a devil? Um, and that word diablos is very fascinating. Um, if we look into diablos, there are several meanings of it. It's not like the other devil words. The other devil words are words that mean like laughter, laughter, evil, um, which are not as fun. But this word really just means the slanderer, which is a very fitting word. But anyways, um, and one of you is the devil. Um, and then we keep reading. Um, and this is a little note. He was speaking, but he was speaking now concerning um, Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, because he was about to betray him, one of the twelve. Okay, so this fits in really well with Dan's post, because a lot of Dan's post was basically about this idea that we shouldn't necessarily care about what happened in the past, and we should care about the present reality of our experiences with deity. Here, we see an example where the present reality of an experience with deity is quite hard for people to understand, right? Because they had just witnessed this miracle. This is the context of this. They had just witnessed this miracle, but then Jesus said something that was hard for them to understand, hard for them to grapple with. And the fact that this was hard for them to understand and hard for them to grapple with 
made it so that they questioned their faith in Jesus Christ. And they questioned their ability to continue to walk with Jesus Christ. And I think that this is true in our own lives. I know for myself that it can be quite difficult to still have a testimony and still have faith in my Savior when I don't understand everything and when I don't understand what will happen concerning the future or concerning the present reality of church doctrine. But I want to testify to you that Jesus Christ, through his atonement, does in fact consecrate everything and that those things that we do not understand can be understood through a relationship with Christ. And this I know of myself. I know it independent of any other being. And I just wanted to share my testimony of that and just give you some things to think about. When we encounter these hard questions, I think too often we approach them as questions of fact because we like to know and we like to see evidences for things. And I think the, the, the present model that I think you have to take with religion, and I've said this a thousand times, but the present model that you have to take with religion is, yes, there are going to be evidences that suggest things on both sides, but the determination of truth is not necessarily evidences. It's the evaluation of the evidences, and the evaluation of the evidences is done through the Holy Spirit. There's no way around that. There's really no way around that, but I just want to testify that Jesus is the Christ, that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true, and I'm really, again, just grateful to be able to do this podcast. I'm grateful to be able to have these experiences, have these awesome interviews, and next up, we have Tarek Delacour, and I'm super excited about that, and I just hope you enjoy your Sunday. Feel free to email me at h-s-e-a-r-i-a-c at fairmormon.org. Let's keep sharing truth, and I just want to invite you to share a copy of the Book of Mormon with someone. Just find one person, share a copy of the Book of Mormon with someone, and please email me your experiences. I'm hoping to hear a lot about you about that challenge. Do it. It'll be fun. Thanks.